And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, sign up for our RSS feed either at iTunes or on the radio page of our site, which is creatingafamily.org slash radio. Today's show will be on disrupting birth order through adoption. I'm Dawn Davenport, and I'm the director of Creating a Family. We're a national nonprofit providing education, resources, and support for both adoption and infertility. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. If you're struggling with infertility, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. For the comprehensive resources, including infertility information, treatment options, and ways to save money, check out the all-new faringfertility.com. And one favor to ask, if you have enjoyed our show and want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. If you have iTunes on your computer or phone, just type in Creating a Family and it will pop right up and there's a button for you to rate it. And if you have an extra moment, I would appreciate it very much, actually, if you would write a comment. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility three times a week. And a recent one you might like was today's blog, which talks about recent research out of the University of Minnesota on how soon children who are adopted as toddlers attach to their new families. It's really fairly optimistic, and I think you'll enjoy reading about it. Uh, We also talk about parenting techniques that can help foster attachment. So please chime in and and share your thoughts at creatingafamily.org slash blog. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Children's Connection. They're an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families really throughout the United States. We also have the Independent Adoption Center, whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work in families in 49 of the 50 states and are fully licensed in California, Indiana, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Connecticut, and New York. Creating a Family, as you just heard, is a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. And one way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. So you've just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors. And so if you're looking for an adoption agency, an adoption therapist, or any any type of adoption provider, please check out uh, our Creating a Family databases on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, type of programs, humanitarian aid, just a whole host of criteria that we think are important. And by using these databases, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today on the Creating a Family show, we're going to be talking about disrupting birth order through adoption. Our guest is Dr. David Brodzinski. He is Professor Emeritus of Clinical and Developmental Psychology at Rutgers University, and he is currently Research Director of the Donaldson Adoption Institute. He is internationally known for his research, training, and clinical work in the area of adoption and has published five books, including the very popular Being Adopted, The Lifelong Search for Self. Welcome, Dr. Brozinski, to Creating a Family. Good morning. Well, I am extremely excited to have you here with us on Creating a Family. As most of our listeners know, I am something of a research geek, but what they probably didn't know, but but I'm sure suspected, is that I'm also a research groupie. And I've been following your research and writing for years, and I am so happy to finally get the chance to talk with you. I was going to say in person, but I guess via the phone, but it feels more like in person. (laughs) Because uh, you have done really some of the seminal research in adoption, and and uh, just as somebody who so appreciates 
uh, the care and the research that you've done. Mm-hmm. I, just let me thank you uh, up front. Oh, thank uh, you for saying so. I am also happy that we're talking about the subject of adopting out of birth order. Uh, and I, I, I just got back from a, a, a conference, and I, it was that this question was the number one question I received. Now, this was a conference of adoption professionals. And as you're going to see on the show, it's, it doesn't surprise me that, in fact, mo- uh, I don't know if most, but many of our questions today uh, that we received through Facebook, um, Twitter, or, or email came from uh, adoption uh, professionals. But I think that both parents and adoption agencies are wrestling with this, this, uh, this issue. I think especially in adoptions from foster care or international adoptions. In the past, it seems that there was this universal wisdom that we should not disrupt birth order via adoption. But now it doesn't seem that this is quite as hard and fast a rule as it used to be. So I'd like to start with a comment we received from an adoption professional who happens to be working with an international adoption agency. She said, this is her comment, we have heard from some families for whom we've made the exception to allow them to adopt out of birth order that it was much harder on their younger children than they had anticipated. It created a crisis situation in a few families and a couple of them disrupted. We have been very cautious since then. And so uh, that was her, uh, just kind of her, wasn't really a question, it was more of a comment. So, Dr. Brodzinski, do you have any thoughts uh, and, uh, on this uh, uh, rule of, 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 of well, I'm, in this case, they do make exceptions, but extreme hesitancy that some agencies have in uh, disrupting birth order? Well, I certainly understand that it's been a question of great interest among the professionals for some time, and certainly among families as well. But like many things in adoption, and adoption has become extraordinarily complex, I really believe it's a case-by-case situation that you have to look at the family, understand what their dynamics are, um, look at the, at the issues of the children and what the children's experiences are, and then move forward accordingly. There are times I would definitely be um, counseling families that uh, disrupting the order probably is not in the interest of this particular family or this particular child who's to be adopted. But in most cases, the vast majority of cases, um, I think it, it can work. I mean, it certainly adds challenge. Uh, but challenge is something to be uh, managed, to dealt with, and overcome, and it usually can be. Okay, and then today we're going to talk about some of the challenges and some of the ways to overcome it. One, uh, we've received another question from a social worker. That's one of the challenges that we may face. She said, we have a concern that when a child of a similar age or an older than the child already in the family is placed for adoption, it can set up for the new child to become the org. Uh, during the ogre, not org, I guess it's ogre, <laughs> during those first months when she is seeing how she fits in as a treasured part of the family, if she is acting in ways that intimidate or threaten similar-aged or younger children, parents can find that most of their energy with her has to go towards being firm, enforcing rules, and protecting the other children from her. It can make what would normally be a difficult adjustment even tougher. What are some ways to help families prevent the ogre phenomenon from occurring, such that the parents don't find that in their hearts they are labeling her as the ogre. What strategies are in place to help? What strategies can be put in place to help sidestep aggressive behavior towards younger children? So, uh, Dr. Brzezinski, surely one of the issues can be aggressive behavior of the older child, as 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 all the children are kind trying to uh, wiggle around and figure out their new place in the family, uh, and aggression. Um, can happen, uh, particularly if children have been in a, p- a position before where that has been a, uh, a, a good survival technique for them. So do you have suggestions? Well, first of all, I, I just want to emphasize that the kind of um, sibling you know, rivalry that, that perhaps um, this is, at least alludes to and sometimes some of the a preferential behavior of parents towards one sibling or another at any one particular time goes on in all kinds of families, not just in adoptive families too. So it's it's not an issue that is unique to adoption, even though uh, what we're talking about here is bringing an older child in or at least the same age child or a little older into a family. It would be very much akin to what often happens in blended families following divorce, um, and you, you find some of the same kinds of issues coming up. I very think, good point. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that's important is, is transparency in the beginning. 
you know, as as you are preparing to, to bring a child into a family, um, and this of course depends upon the children's age and their ability to understand what's going on, but being able to talk about these issues ahead of time, being able to in, to be to predict that there will be challenge and and, and role play out some of the um, ways in which it might be dealt with, being able to remind the children, you know, once everyone is in the family and dealing, oh yeah, this is what we thought might happen. Um, is is ways of of tending to minimize um, in one's own mind that this is suddenly uh, a a big challenge that one had never been prepared for. One of the big one of the biggest problems um, for families and for the children is when they develop expectations that are and um, being able to um, prepare ahead of times tends to minimize those unrealistic expectations. You know, we, we find that a major predictor of disruption is violated expectations. When parents believe one thing or when children believe one thing and something quite different emerges over time and then the frustration of, of not having what you, what you thought you were going to have creates the kind of stress that can lead to serious problems. Yeah, it can. I, I agree, and that's that's pretty much where we come out at uh, creating a family. That's our mission: is to help educate and set realistic expectations on the from the uh, position of the parents. But it, it, but what you said made me think about the issue of realistic expectations uh, for the child who is being placed, which is a harder thing because parents have uh, less control. Is there anything? That can be done now with children being adopted from foster care um it is possible uh to work with the social worker the caseworker for that child to help uh, to make certain that the expectations or at least have been discussed realistic expectations and parents have the opportunity to do that because there's usually some type of transition period um but what about with children adopted from abroad any uh, any ways to try to help work to set realistic expectation from the child's standpoint? Well, that, that's more difficult uh, when you're ad- um, adopting from abroad for a couple of reasons. One, you don't usually have access to the child uh, until you until you um, go over to the, the country of, of origin. Although occasionally there, some children are adopting through programs in which children come over through a, a summer camp before, and that's where you meet uh, the child. But putting putting that aside. Mm-hmm. It will be more difficult, and you also have a language barrier in in the vast majority of cases. That's right. Yeah, which which, which creates you know a tremendous amount of frustration and confusion for both the child who is coming into a home where everything is unfamiliar, including the language and the the, the ability just just to have their needs expressed, and of course the siblings who can't understand their brothers and sisters either. Um, who, who you can prepare, though, are the brothers and sisters who are already here, uh, and and that you know, again, uh, too often I think the focus is on preparing parents um, and to adopt, but also we need to think about preparing children, both those who are being adopted and those already in the family, um, you know, prior to a, a transition of a new child coming into the family. You can. One of the things uh, we do, for example, is to help the uh, we help the children in the family uh, to 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 accept the the new child, whether younger or older, by helping them by by making them helpers. You know, showing showing them ways in which they can you know be useful to uh, make a smoother transition for their new brother or sister whether it be showing them around the house, whether it be sharing toys, whether it be taking them around the neighborhood um, where, you know, where they are able to go and permitted to go um, so that they see, they see that they have a role in this as well. Um, and I think, you know, when that happens, you know, it, it tends to um, reduce their feelings of being out of control, that something is happening to me. I'm getting a, a, a brother or sister of the same age or older or younger, for that matter, um, you know, but I'm, I'm not in control of it, and it's, it's disrupting my life. 
And, and it does. It disrupts everybody's life when you bring a new family member. Uh, Regardless, know. you're right, and I think yeah, uh, by birth as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean it is. Yeah, I mean, and 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 the reality is, adding a a new member to the family is stressful. It, it may be joyous, but it's also stressful, and stress brings its own challenges as well. Do you have any specific resources that you could recommend on preparing brothers and sisters? We have extensive book lists, and we have um. We have a book list for preparing children for the adoption of a of a sibling. Any specific uh, resources, books or otherwise, uh, well, that you could suggest? You know, the the work of Lois Molina. She's written a couple of books on on raising adopted kids. She has some very good suggestions, very practical suggestions um, about um, this, these kinds of issues. Um, there are broader uh, issues around sibling relationships and adoption foster care that are very well dealt with by, in a book by um, uh, Deborah Silverstein and Susan Smith on. It's called Sibling Relationships and Adoption Foster Care, um, and that was published by Prager in 2009, I believe. Um, but and there's I also another one by Arlita James, uh, Brothers and Sisters in Adoption. Exactly. I was about to simply mention the only other one I'm, I'm, that just pops into my mind is by uh, by her. Yeah, and we have all of those uh, listed. Now that's not. We have a, uh, a suggested uh, books for parents, and that's on uh, that. That, and we also have a suggested book list for children, uh, um, uh, for preparing them uh, for the adoption of a sibling. Um, and and some for the adoption and, and I'm blanking on the name of it, uh, but I'll uh, find it in just a moment. Um, on the, it's the only one I know, but it's an excellent one on adopting a child who is, I think in this case the child may be younger, but the child still has some uh, behaviors that uh, are acting out behaviors, uh, and it helps explain that for the for you know, all the yeah, Don. I think that you know, the whole issue of adopting a child out of the uh, birth order really is is part of a broader issue about um uh, preparing children for any kind of of uh, adoption um and and I, my point before was that we do a lot of work on preparing parents uh for adoption but we don't do much work on preparing the existing children in the family to uh, to to receive a new brother or sister or preparing the the child themselves to come into an already formed family it's mostly parent uh, or adult preparation rather than child you know that is that's uh, that's so true uh certainly our resources are focused more although i will say that that um one of the ways that we help prepare children is by providing resources a list of resources for parents to use uh to help prepare their uh their kids and the name of the book i was thinking of was Emma's yucky brother by Jean Little it's no uh, i don't know that one <laughs> it's it's good it's uh yeah. it helps prepare uh that the child bring brought in was adopted from uh foster care and was acting out and so it's talking about uh uh, how to prepare for those uh, for those behaviors and things like that, and helping them understand. And yeah. I just love the name. I mean, there are, there right. are so many children's books out that, that are touching upon, you know, a, a variety of family dynamic themes. Now it's almost hard to, to, to keep up with all of them. Yeah, well, you, amen on that. You're exactly yeah. right. Um, does the age of the child being adopted in relation to the existing children make a difference? Uh, and, uh, you know, if there's uh, so many year age gap is better than a very small age gap or, or vice versa. Um, does, uh, have you seen any, um, any uh, evidence uh, either in practice or through research on, um, on how age plays out, age differences play out? The age gap, you mean. Yeah, I honestly don't know of any research that that, that directly addresses that. I'm sure there, there may well be, um, but I certainly address that in in a, in a more of a clinical sense. And, and I guess what I'd start out by saying is, it, it really depends upon the individual uh, family. There are times, for example, when children, you know, have. Um, uh, another child come into the uh, family when, when they're the same age. That that it is very 
easy for them because they have now someone to play with their own age who you know can share similar interests and so forth but it also creates uh, a tremendous amount of opportunity for jealousy because they have the same level of needs um, and uh, the same uh, perhaps expect type of expectations that um, uh, that the parents will have of them which uh, can create you know complexities um, you know, for very younger children are often protected uh, by their um, by their youth and, and not fully understanding what's going on, um, and and that kind of sibling jealousy we see uh, is less often in, in very younger children than once we get into the middle school years and and, uh, and on up. Um, children uh, seem to to adjust to the entrance of a child better when they're when they're much younger than when they're older. Um, and generally, would you say it's it's the preschool age and under are, and then and then school age, or would you make the cutoff more of the middle school uh, age, uh, as far as when you should anticipate and be do extra preparing and extra thinking through? Well, I um, in the preschool year, years um, and on down, children seem to uh, adjust pretty well to the extent that you know their basic needs are being met and and they're you know the same basic attention that they're getting from their parents is is maintained they they're not usually involved in sibling jealousy and you can often um you know help a, a preschooler to become a mommy's helper to to take care of a, a younger child or for an older child coming into the family it's a little different when you're getting into the school age years 6 7 8 and on up uh is where you begin to um have uh, uh, you know difficulties and you know especially you know when when you're getting into the period when kids are developing strong peer groups and uh, sharing of, of peers, uh, jealousy around those issues. I've seen in a couple of cases I've worked with recently where the kids are of the same age and, you know, a child is brought into the family and, and suddenly the question is, well, um, you know, these are my friends and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're not necessarily your friends. And sometimes, actually, the, the friends start to gravitate more towards the new sibling, and which creates jealousy. So, um, Or parental to, expectations that... You take the the new you know you're going out with a group of friends take the new child you know that that yeah. you know that it would automatically they're now a unit that should go together when in fact the child who already has established their peer group would be re- sometimes resentful of all of a sudden having a a new tag along. Exactly, I I think the what one of the things parents have to understand is is that all the children will have their own unique needs, uh, their own unique interests, and so forth, and that has to be respected and reinforced. And and that you can't always expect to have to tag along your either new younger or new older brother or sister uh, to something that uh, before was was yours, yours to do uh, without the constraints of another brother or sister tagging along. Yeah. Common wisdom says that displacing the eldest is harder than displacing the youngest. Uh, do you agree with that? I think generally that's true, although, you know, um, and I, I, you hear me qualifying all the time because I'm a researcher. I, tend to make, I don't make it real, real strong. This is definitely the case because we find, okay. you know, you can, you we can always find research that supports the opposite. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think that it's true uh, you know, when when you are – Displacing uh, someone who used to be the oldest, who had all the privileges, responsibilities, and respect of the older child position, and when that child's role is displaced, um, it can lead to to more complications. Um, But uh, you know, the the child who is the baby, who likes who likes that role, not all kids do, uh, but who likes the role of being the baby and, and getting getting things by being the baby, so to speak, in the family is now going to have some complications um, when a younger child is brought in and all the attention and the fuss gets you know, uh, directed towards the new child. True, and, and I think we assume that um, it seems more natural to us that because we've, we always think in terms of a child being displaced from the position of being baby because that happens through birth. So yeah. we perhaps have less sympathy for it in the sense that it's like, well, yeah, everybody has that happen, um, as opposed to a child being displaced as the eldest. 
You know, yeah. one of the things, I, and I meant to mention this when you were talking about um, the the new child and, and the troubles and, and being identified as the ogre, the you know the you know, the one who always has the problems. It's really important for parents to to kind of catch their child being good, to, to try to find the strengths in the child, and 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 to go out of their way, you know, to to make sure that that those are being addressed because it's too easy. Uh, to, to see a child who is confused, who's frightened, who who may be withdrawn or sometimes acting out out of uh, the anxiety that they have the new placement to to address that. We, we have to address it, but sometimes in the midst of daily life, where all we're doing is addressing the problems and we're taking for granted the things that are going well. Sometimes a good game to game a good uh, mental game for parents to play is to make certain that uh, at least once a day, preferably twice a day, they make note of something good that the child has done, forcing Absolutely. themselves to take note of it. Uh, because of course it happens. It's just that so many other things happen at the same time that uh, that sometimes we don't note it. Since so we don't note it, we won't remember it. Um, exactly. Yeah. One of the issues parents often face is that the new child may be older in years, but emotionally and behaviorally much younger. So how does this affect birth order disruption where you've got a child who technically is older but is not behaving that way? Yeah, that's that's a very common problem, and it's it can be a big problem because um, we tend to develop our expectations based upon children's age and what children of a certain age are normally expected to be uh, to do. And I think you know we need to. Part of this is about preparation, uh, helping parents to understand that this particular child, although 10 years of age, because of the early adversity they experienced, uh, because of some developmental delays, you know, is emotionally operating at at a, at a younger age level. And, and they, they may need to have some of those earlier needs met um, in ways that um, they, the parents hadn't expected. And frankly, in ways that sometimes uh, are confusing for uh, you know, their siblings. Uh, but tr- treating a child only in accordance with their chronological age does them great disservice. And and what I hear you saying is that should go to be part of the preparation for the siblings as well as the parents yep. to think in terms of much younger acting behavior and 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 how that would how that would look um, right. for a uh, for a child uh, and help siblings uh, think through a child who may be tantruming where they wouldn't expect a child to tantrum or may. Uh, have uh, you know uh, uh, still having uh, potty accidents when you would not be thinking that a child that age or whatever are re- wanting to revert back to some much younger uh, age. Um, let you me know, take a moment, uh, Doc. Okay. Can I just say well, one thing about you know I've been Please. talking a lot about uh, preparation and I want to make a point that I think is important and that is preparation and education isn't something that ends at the placement, nor should it. Um, Amen. But it, 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 it continues through, at the very least, throughout the developing years. And, and one of the things that parents need to be uh, clear about is that help seeking is not a reflection of parenting failure. It is a reflection of parenting strength, especially when we're adopting kids with special needs. And, and almost by definition, children coming out of the foster system and coming from abroad have, you know, special needs that 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 will require addressing not just in the initial integration phase but as as the child develops over time and parents need to be able to reach out to those in the community who have the expertise they may be professionals they may be other uh, knowledgeable uh, adoptive parents i often find that uh, parents get some of their best advice from other parents um, and and you know we, we need to help them to develop those connections you know that is a perfect segue to what I was just going to say. Uh, you know, in-person support is wonderful, but not the reality is there are not that many in-person adoption support groups that exist, particularly for people outside of major metropolitan areas. So, it, 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 I think that online groups it can offer such wonderful support, and I see it uh, in particular uh, the Creating a Family Facebook support group. People routinely will post and, and say, 
you know, we're struggling with this issue. Can you make suggestions on what we could do to, you know, try to help our children? And uh, and the support just flows. And really good advice from people who have been there, done that. Uh, to find the Creating a Family uh, Facebook support group, uh, the easiest way is to uh, just type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box. It's at the very top. Uh, our group will pop up. It is You just have to join it. It is a closed group, but, it, but we welcome new members. You just need to join it. I should also quickly mention that Creating a Family has the largest adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us on all of them. On Twitter, although Twitter is not as good for giving really detailed advice, but it's good for sharing resources. Uh, you could connect with us through either Dawn Davenport One or Creating a Family. And on Facebook, I just mentioned that the, we have a support group. We also have a Creating a Family page. And you can also connect with me, Dawn.Davenport One. And we would, uh, we welcome members and, and it is a, I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more that it is a great way. Um, you said that uh, seeking help does not have to be from professionals, uh, but it can be from professionals. And I, and I uh, agree with you that parents are often, uh, other parents are, are sometimes the best. But uh, do, do you feel like what type of therapist, if, if somebody isn't living where there is a specific adoption therapist, what type of, of therapy would you recommend or what type of support would you recommend for families? Well, around the kind of issue that you're raising here, uh, I mean, this is really a, a family uh, therapist type of issue, uh, family therapy type of issue. Um, someone who is primarily trained in individual therapy, I don't think, will be as attuned to the what we call the family systems issue that that uh, integrating a new child into a family, younger or older, um, poses for for. Um, for the adoptive parents. So, you know, the idea would be to find someone who understands uh, adoption, uh, who understands uh, family systems, uh, who provides this kind of work on a regular basis. Uh, you're correct that, you know, depending upon where you're living, you may not have available people who have a lot of experience working in, with adopted and foster, or foster children. Um, so if that is the case, then looking for someone who's a skilled family therapist who probably has worked with blended families. Uh, it's so common, unfortunately, in our society that divorce rate is so high, and 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 second marriages and blended families are, are you know, are are, are very common. And any family therapist, uh, you know, uh, who's been around a while would be working in this area, and they would be addressing some of the same issues that we're talking about, um, you know, even if they're not working with adoptive families. That's great advice because you're right that 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 expertise does exist in just about with any type of family therapist, regardless of where the uh, the person is is living. We got a couple of questions on the same topic. Here's one from an adoption professional. This time it's an, an agency director. She says, "I worry very much about sexual abuse. It is not uncommon for adopted for older adopted children to have been sexually abused before coming to a family, and also not uncommon for them to act out sexually against other children. We simply forbid disrupting birth order as a result of this concern. Um, so let's talk about that, and then uh, they, uh, the, the well, yeah. Let me just talk about that first, and then I'll ask the second question okay. on that. It is a it is a real concern and one that I think that 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 parents need to go in prepared for. What do you have to say about uh, about this issue? I um, I have great concerns about that too. I think one of the riskiest placements is to take a, an older child who has a history of being sexually abused, who's already begun to act out towards others, and placing them in a, a family where there are very vulnerable young children. Uh, you can't provide uh, the kind of supervision 24/7 that you necessarily uh, would would be required in this situation. So I think it's a high risk placement, and uh, you know would would not be recommending it unless it's it's a placement of last resort, and then only with um, you know really good training. Here's part of the problem, though. You know. Sexual abuse is something that, unlike physical abuse, which occurs out in the living room, sexual abuse occurs behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about very young children, 
um, you know, who may be sexually abused, and not in a uh, in a way that leaves any obvious markings or any obvious trauma to the child, but nevertheless is abuse and over sexualizes the child. This is, we may have children. We know we have children who are being moved from home to home and who've been abused, and yet it's not documented. No one really knows until such time as the child begins to act in ways that at least raises some cautionary flags. The problem is there are no behavioral indicators of sexual abuse. Even a child acting out sexually does not mean that the child has been sexually abused. It just it may it means he may be exposed to something inappropriate or got into some videos that he shouldn't have. But the, and that's, the problem that's a, I, I'm is, actually glad you, you brought up that point because it, it, children who act out sexually, it, it, we automatically assume that it was actual abuse, but it could be in situations either in birth family or in orphanage situations where they uh, uh, witnessed sex, or you're right, getting into uh, uh, videos uh, or watching or TV. Or watching where they, others. Yeah, exactly. And and so you, so it doesn't necessarily, but nonetheless, you've got a child who is uh, sexually curious, but as you point out, so sometimes you know of this, but I would say more often you there you don't know. So what's a parent to do? Well, I mean, if if you don't know, I mean, if there's no reason to suspect, you obviously you know you impose the normal kinds of rules in a family about privacy and um, and and supervision and so forth. I don't think you need to take specific steps. Um, you know, beyond that, unless there is a reason to, otherwise, you know, it's almost like stigmatizing the child in your own mind. That this is a child who could be. I abused. worry about that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, maybe they've been abused, and you start to think of the child as a, a potential abuse victim, and and that can alter a way a, a parent thinks about the child broadly, and alter the way they act toward that child. And and unfortunately, you know, that concern could be shared with others, and others could hear uh, that conversation. So, I mean, we do our very best as professionals, and I know the caseworkers do too, to to try to document what the child's history has been. If there has been some sex play and so forth, which is common among uh, among young kids uh, who who have had no history of abuse, you know, one we're going to document that we're going to try to build in uh, appropriate kinds of um, uh, structure and, and and privacy rules and good touch bad touch kinds of lessons and so forth. You know, if it goes beyond that, that's when you start to have to impose uh, much more uh, structure, much more training for for the parents around managing a child who who has evidence um, or where there has been documented, um, you know, uh, evidence of, of 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 a history of abuse. And you know, just going back to my earlier point, if we know about a child who's been abused, and they already are beginning to sexualize the environments that they've been in. You know, you have to be very cautious about the kind of of home you place this child in. You need a home where a parent really is aware of of, um, uh, what to do around sexual abuse, who've had specialized training in raising kids who've been sexually abused. And frankly, from my perspective, I, I don't think I've ever made, when I've been consulted, has ever made a recommendation uh, of of going forth with a placement of a, a somewhat older child now, let's say in the middle childhood years on up, uh, who has this history with with uh, kids who are preschoolers. Um, I just they, think it's, uh, a da- it's a da- and I'm emphasizing here where the child already has started to sexualize the environment that they're in. Right. So you're saying when you know of, you have reason to believe that the child's behavior is beyond a normal sexual curiosity. And and as you say, many, many children, well, I almost guess the vast majority, uh, have curiosity and 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 engage in what we you know the, we used to call the playing doctor or the whatever yeah. the you show me yours I'll show you mine type of thing that does not mean that a child has been sexually abused or sexually exposed but if you've got a child who is going beyond that who is uh, acting out sexual acts uh, what else would be an indicator of a child who has gone who likely has been Excuse me. exposed uh, sexually exposed or sexually abused how can we make the distinction between that and just normal curiosity it's difficult i mean part of it is um uh how much how how often are they engaging in the act is it is it more compulsive in nature is the are the acts are the, are the questions 
beyond what we normally see for a child of this age. We don't, you know, children, we know that that, that babies will rub themselves, you know, that, they, that there is a form of masturbation even in infancy. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly in the preschool years, kids are curious about and, and will touch themselves. But you don't find children who haven't been abused generally uh, engaging in compulsive masturbatory activity or inserting objects in in their vagina or their anus. Um, And you don't find, uh, let's say, a little bit older children, uh, you know, talking about oral sex or or other kinds of penetrative sex without some, something of happening to them of an inappropriate nature. Um, You know, the, the playing doctor kind of game is, is, you know, is usually about you show me yours, I'll show you mine, and, and, and maybe some touching, or, or but it, it, it rarely goes beyond that. And and so what you're looking for are are behaviors that are just generally not common for a child of a particular age. And then you have to ask where did it come from? Well, sometimes because they they they've seen mommy and daddy, or sometimes it's because they've seen something, you know, on a video, or but. But sometimes it's it is about um, uh, having something happen to them, and, and I guess one other point I would make: it's not just the when I said I would not place uh, an older child who had been abused with younger kids. I, I want to offer a caveat because I, I was empathizing before, um, who's already begun to act out sexually towards others, usually younger children. Um, that's usually the case when children have been have a history of repeated abuse as opposed to a single one or two in, incidents of it. Um, so I, I, I've worked with families where you were a child, a young boy I, I'm thinking of, who <clears throat> uh, you know was abused by a, a grandfather-like figure, you know, not relative, but someone who played that role in his family when he was six or seven years of age. And he was subsequently, a couple of years later, placed in a family with a preschool. And he had a single incident of abuse. Um, it was found out. Uh, he was not unduly traumatized by it. He was never symptomatic um, in a sexual way. And, and with some help, you know, he was able to, to integrate that experience reasonably healthy. Placement of that boy into uh, a family with younger kids did not pose a risk because, one, we're seeing a child who's already where it's been addressed, where he hadn't begun to act out, where there was, a, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, a, um, only a single incident and, and non-traumatic incident of abuse. Another social worker says, asks if you recommend a plan whereby parents should, would not leave their children out of their sight after the new child is placed until the child has been home at least a few months. She acknowledges that this is a challenge for a parent who is the only parent home and who needs to shower or cook dinner, uh, but she notes that uh, abuse can occur in a minute or two when the parent is not supervising children. Uh, how realistic, I guess I'm wondering, is it to to to, uh, to expect that the child is never out of your sight, but perhaps that it, do you recommend that as a goal for the first couple of months when a older child, um, particularly if there are younger children uh, in the family, if an older child has been adopted? That I've, I've I've never made that recommendation myself. Uh, although that's usually not a, a I'm not in that role. It's what the caseworkers do. But I've certainly been involved in cases where workers have raised that and sometimes have made that. It, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to carry out. I have had families who I know who've hired uh, mothers helpers. You know, so uh, there's always someone there. It gives them the freedom to. Take the shower to go shopping. Um, you know, it just break, to do some frankly, huh? just to not always be on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, frankly, if you are adopting a special needs child, you know, in a, in a situation like you're describing, it's very stressful. Um, mm-hmm. Stressful in the sense of simply even the normative parts of integrating an older child into the family, of of dealing with their anxiety, of dealing with the unknown for the for the existing siblings, of of all the work that it takes. And you you need uh, when, when you're adopting special needs kids, you have to be concerned not just with their 
uh, health, but the health, your own health, and the health of the marital relationship if you're married. So you know, self care is very important. That means you are preaching getting, to the choir here. I say yeah, that. Yeah, that all means the get, time. that means getting out and, and and doing something for yourself occasionally. So, you know, you got to invest the time and sometimes, frankly, a little bit of money uh, to have someone who can take your place to be who's responsible, who knows what to be looking for, knows what to do. Um, in their monitoring and in their intervention when mom or dad are not around. And, you know, I think this is important for people to think about prior to adoption. Let's think of a support system you can get in place. This doesn't have to exist forever. But take the first six months and say, okay, can I get my mother-in-law to come over on, you know, uh, you know every Saturday morning so we can uh, – uh, my husband and I can go for a run and a cup of coffee. Um, who can I get in the afternoons when we've got uh, homework to do, we've got that meltdown hour, and uh, can I get a college student or a high school student to come over and play with the two younger kids? Just simple, simple things like that that I think is really helpful to think about before you go into the adoption. Um, and then even, I suppose, even one step further, uh, which would be uh, where do we go get to get for help? I mean, where is there a therapist that we can access if we see that we need them? Let's go ahead and join some of the uh, in-person or online support groups and uh, start you know, figuring out you know, when, uh, how they work and, and, uh, and introduce ourselves and, and, and become familiar with those. To do that before we adopt so that we are more – because after you adopt, the last thing you've got time to do that first couple of months is, uh, is seek out help and set up a new system. You're absolutely correct. I mean, it's the preparation is also about thinking about your support systems, who you can uh, bring in to help you, the kind of respite. Uh, frankly, that's what it is sometimes, respite. Uh, you know, yeah. that that is important to build into the to the whole process of, of integrating a new child. You know, one of the things that sometimes families are told uh, is, uh, and this goes back to uh, the need to be there to, you know, basically 24/7. Is you know when you're integrating a child into a family, you know you're you're, you're building in uh, a process to create attachments, and so you have, you have to be available basically 24/7. And I think that exaggerates the situation. I mean, you need to be there. You don't want uh, you know parenting to be done by you know too many different people at once. You want to make sure the child has a primary two primary people to go to. But um, you know, having a support system in place, someone who can step in periodically, not, not you know, to to take the place of mom and dad, to monitor, to provide the structure, and frankly, just to give mom and dad uh, a time a time off, you know, of, of a of a wonderful but nevertheless stressful process. <laughs> you know, I I. Uh... I actually have been working on a blog on that very topic. I have uh, often said that I think we're taking attachment parenting perhaps a little too far. Uh, and uh, I have spoken out uh, on issues where people have not even wanted grandparents to hold an adopted child, uh, yeah. not to touch them, not to hold them. And I think, oh, come on. I mean, that's, you know, grandparents, you're, you're wanting to foster attachment there. And I think we've given the idea that perhaps attachment is so fragile that we must literally never let our children be out of our arms, never let anybody touch them other than us, and good heavens, that's exhausting. Yeah, I'm a big attachment proponent. So I'm, I, when I say that um, you know we can bring other people in periodically, I, I say that with confidence that it does not disrupt the attachment process. Amen. Here's a question from Susanna. She says, we are waiting for the arrival of an eight-year-old boy from Ethiopia. Thank you so much for your resources and for your support group. Our eldest child is our seven-year-old daughter, and we also have a five-year-old son. We are wondering about sleeping arrangements. What do you recommend for sleeping arrangements? Should we have our new son sleep in our bedroom for the first month so that we can keep an eye on him? We have no reason to worry, but we want to be careful and not dumb. Um, they have a seven-year-old girl and a how old boy? Five-year-old boy, seven-year-old girl, and they're adopting an eight-year-old boy. Yeah, from Ethiopia. I, I I see little reason to have him sleep in in the room uh, with them. And in fact, I would you know I would normalize it by you know having them sleep you know probably sleep with in the room with his brother uh, to build that bond. But but 
to ensure that you know that they are attuned to you know if he's having nightmares or or other kinds of anxieties where he uh, they believe his their presence uh, needs to be uh, you know increased you know that that could be considered an option uh, but uh, I, I would see little reason necessarily to um, you know to to have him sleep there. Uh, what about the if the uh, parents? Uh, how can we prepare either that child, uh, that eight year old, probably not because of the language issues, but the five year old if they're going to be sharing a bedroom? Uh, how do we? Would you initiate discussion of good touch, bad touch, uh, so that uh, that child is clued in your existing child or do you think that's overboard and and anticipating and stigmatizing well i i think that you know frankly most families are are starting even around 5 or 6 years of age to to be concerned uh, about uh, issues of good touch and bad touch and it it can be it can be dealt with by the family uh independent of this new brother without ever bringing him in uh to the idea that this good touch bad touch is about having you know sleeping with your brother um i think that you know that might be something that they would consider to to start that before uh the older boy is brought into the home uh but also i think on a more positive level to help the, the younger brother to um, deal with perhaps the issue of having someone come invading his space, to make him part of the planning of you know how they're going to set up the room. What what, what do you think we can you know, do to make this a, a more welcoming environment? You know, to have him draw pictures and so forth, but also to help him to understand that his new brother will want to make some of some part of the room that's his. You know more personalized he'll probably want to put other things up and and so that the, the younger brother is anticipates that that some changes will be made that will be um those that are instituted by the brother and not just by him but getting the younger brother involved in this i think would be a way of helping him to to deal with whatever um you know uh, anxiety that he might have about the child coming in we have a question from Cheryl. She said, if you had a choice to adopt either the same age child as an existing child, a bio- biological child, or to disrupt the birth order by putting the adopted child in the middle of several biological children, which would be better for your family, in your opinion? Now, obviously, you can't make it without knowing the family, you can't say, but just if you could generalize for some things that, that Cheryl could think about when um, it, when making the decision of whether to adopt same age or, or to, to adopt <laughs> Uh, older or to put him in the middle of biological children? Well, you're right. I mean, it's hard to make generalizations. I mean, the one thing that pops into mind is, um, you know, if you have uh, two existing, two children already in the family, whether adopted or birth, you know, and let's say there's, they're eight and, and, and four, and you adopt another eight-year-old, you've created a dyad that it naturally is more naturally to form that, that might keep the, the, uh, four, the four-year-old out because um, of their similar interests and so forth. Or conversely, if you adopted a four-year-old, you know, you, you've created a four-year-old uh, dyad uh, that um, will perhaps uh, reduce some of the interactions between the eight-year-old and, and, and the new child. Uh, but having said that, that forms naturally anyway in families. You have some kids because they're closer in age and therefore closer in interest um, form their own little units. Um, and I'm not sure there's any way of preventing it, or or should you necessarily try to prevent it? It naturally flows in a family. So you're reaching the the issue that we often call virtual uh, twinning or artificial twinning, and that is. Uh, adopting a child, uh, you can adopt them at the same time, or bring a child into the family, where you are within, uh, you know, roughly nine within nine months of a child already in the family. So, in other words, you've got two very similar aged children. Now, that is a separate issue from yep. disrupting birth order. But and we have we do have resources. Let me just say on that called uh, I think we call it artificial, or we may call it virtual twinning. Uh, go to our site and search under the resource page for one of those. Uh, topics, uh, so that is a slightly separate one. But but since you raise it, uh, again, that has been pretty much universally uh, discouraged. Uh, and and what is your feeling on that? Well, you know, 
I think it creates sometimes creates more problems than not. Um, I've seen it work in a couple of cases. I have a friend who, who you know, it, it happened to, you know, and uh, the sibs uh, get along very well, and and it's never been much of a problem. But I've seen other uh, situations where, you know, people make the assumption that they are twins, and then, uh, you know, the complication. Well, we we're, we're really not. Oh, you're fraternal twins? No, we're really not twins. You know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm adopted, and or my brother's adopted, and I'm not. It, it forces the distinction sometimes in ways that um, uh, makes one or both of the, of the siblings or the parents themselves um, uh, uncomfortable. Well, it certainly makes the the uh, the issue of adoption up, constantly having to be explained. Um, exactly, as, as, yeah. as, as in the case of transracial placements, too, you know. Yeah, but where that's true. Where, where, where the adoption is, yeah. is not private anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also the uh, slight, it doesn't have to be a complication, but generally within children, often, especially if a child has uh, had the advantage of growing up in a home versus uh, compared to a child that has been brought into the home from a disadvantaged uh, uh, or from a harder place, um, it, it, it forces a, a comparison of children. Same-age children are more likely to be compared than our children who are up at different ages. And that can be hard uh, because usually when you compare, somebody doesn't come out on top. Well, and there, and there's um, an added factor about that comparison too, and that is that since we are, to a great extent, uh, a, a reflection of our biology, um, and the adopted child, of course, uh, biologically connected to his birth family and has the traits that are inherited from them, and the uh, and the child who was born into the family, um, uh, you know, uh, having the traits, uh, you know, that are passed on by the uh, parents. We we oftentimes see a greater degree of similarity in, in, in not only in how you look but in some of the uh, some of the traits of who you are personality uh, academics and so forth you know with the biological child versus the adopted child and then that natural comparison that occurs because the kids are of a different age sometimes um, is accentuated by the fact that the, the siblings may be quite different. You know, mm-hmm. in, in traits and characteristics, mm-hmm. in either direction, one being better than the other, or or the reverse. Right, and and it's sometimes hard. We sometimes see when we see our own traits reflected. Well, actually, I think that can cut both ways. But if we see our own traits reflected, it's sometimes easy for us to uh, assign the well, that is a good trait versus uh, and and uh, versus a trait that is quite different from us. You're right. Yeah. What are some signs? that parents can look for that would indicate that that their children or they themselves are struggling with more than just the usual adjustment for families who have decided to adopt uh, and disrupt birth order what are some signs warning signs that parents can look for that would indicate that they need to get help well problems that that don't seem to to lessen over time. I mean, we all experience problems, and you know, as children and as parents, you know, we we deal with them, and uh, uh, hopefully, in the majority of cases, they lessen over time. Uh, parents who who keep uh, trying a certain strategy and, and and it's not working, you know, they they need to figure out new strategies for uh, for working, uh, you know, to make you know to be able to address you know what is going on. Children who um, continue to to show uh, uh, some uh, emotional re- reaction to to their adoption, you know, to the uh, issue of of being separated from people from the past or not knowing where they come from, and uh, and and uh, and are you know seem to be struggling with this issue. Uh, certainly, behaviors that are beyond the norm. Uh, where you know you see a child who uh, continues to struggle in school despite help, and you know, and and, and they are struggling. You, you you may need to get an evaluation and some uh, you know some professional interventions. Children who are are acting in ways that again are are beyond the norm over a period of time. That's what I'm I'm saying. In any one moment, any one day, you can have a child who has a meltdown and you know really just want to get away from the child in the, in the moment but you know you don't and you help the child and 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 they usually recover but that that pattern of melting down you know fairly often despite whatever 
uh, you know, parental intervention that you're that you're trying. So it, it is the intensity, it's the duration, it is the you know the perspective of of of, of the child. Uh, we have to be appreciative of the fact that you know parents have their views and their experiences of adoption. Children have their own views, their own experiences, and uh, we have to be attuned to how children are processing the, the whole experience of being adopted. And it's not always shared with parents. Um, you know, there is a lot going on in children that gets shared and a lot that goes on with children that are not shared, and, and particularly as kids move from the preschool years where they share a lot into the school age years where they begin sometimes to be more private with their thoughts and their feelings. We have to be attuned to the subtleties that um you know that that children often need something special. It can be from a parent. It can be more attention around the issue, but it may it may be uh, that they need someone outside the family to be talking to, or that the family itself, uh, despite trying to to deal with these issues again and again, are not making the progress they want, and that's when they seek help. And we, we've talked about uh, the child's behavior. What about feelings that parents are having that would indicate that 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 they need that uh, that they can recognize feelings within themselves that would indicate that they need help? Sure. Um, parents sometimes um, are reluctant to acknowledge that uh, what they had hoped for hasn't happened, um, and uh, they you know they they struggle with it. They feel guilty uh, about that. Uh, they feel depressed sometimes. Uh, uh, they they feel anxious about their ability to to meet the child's needs. Um, seeking help, as I said before, needs to be understood as a, as a strength. Adopting kids from foster care and adopting kids from abroad, you know, represents some challenges over and above baby adoption, domestic baby adoption. You know, these are kids who come with histories, and and families need to know that um, that. It, it is not only okay, it's to be expected that they will at one time or another need some help, uh, if not from, uh, you know, from, maybe from their friends, from their family members, from, from other uh, adoptive parents, as we've already talked about. But sometimes when, when it goes beyond that kind of help, then uh, the help of, of someone who knows how to intervene or how to help parents to, to understand what is going on and, and to intervene in the child's life to, to to make uh, the process smoother and, and, to, and to give the parents the confidence that they can do it, and most can. And, and you've talked about intensity and duration uh, for both the, uh, the feelings and the behaviors of the child and the parent. Uh, could you give us a feel for duration? Uh, sometimes parents start worrying if in two weeks after the adoption, uh, things are not going smoothly, they dislike the child, they, they or the child's behavior is, is poor. How much time do we need to, how often, how much of a transition period, what duration period are you talking to about that before parents need to start thinking, uh, well, okay, this is outside the norm? It, it's a good question, and, and I think the, the, the uh, it has to be answered um, in a slightly different way. The transition process um, is a long process. Um, it begins before a child is placed and it will continue for a long period afterwards. Uh, it, depending upon the child's history and, 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 and whether or not they have already shown significant problems in other um, homes or other environments, you know, attachment problems or conduct problems or other kinds of developmental delays, parents need to be gauging progress, not in terms of leaps and bounds, but in the small increments that we that we will be able to see over periods of of months, the, the child who had meltdowns or sleep problems, you know, regularly in the first month, in the second month it's lessened, in the third month it's lessened, it's still there, maybe a little bit in the fourth month and so forth. We 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 see progress, but it's going to be slow in some areas and slower in some areas than others. Around attachment, you know, most families will find that 
you know, with the kind of reasonably attuned parenting that parents are uh, are capable of providing, that, you know, over the first six months to a year, children will begin to form reasonably good attachments. But here's the kicker. The kicker is that the children who've had histories of insecure attachments, that internal sense of insecurity is not uh, uh, simply replaced with security. Both live side by side. That's what the research shows. And and all it takes is the appropriate trigger that reminds the child of something from the past that will lead to some kind of meltdown that reflects that that underlying fear that still exists. So that can that can continue for a long period of time. It can continue uh, for a lifetime, I would think. I mean, can, that doesn't it can, yes, it can. It can. But that peri- that that feeling of insecurity. Oh, well, this that would be a great topic for another show. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of this one. Let me tell you that uh, for our audience, we primarily keep in touch through our twice-weekly e-newsletter, and we would love to have you join us. So sign up for the e- for the weekly newsletter uh, at creatingafamily.org. Uh, or if you would like, some people would just prefer send us an email and ask us to add you, and you can send the email to info at creatingafamily.org. Thank you so much, Dr. David Barton, for being our guest today. So, everybody, if you want to participate in a discussion on the topics of this show, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. Also, to get more information on, uh, there's two places to get more information about Dr. Brodzinski and his work. One is at the Donaldson Institute, where you can uh, you could check that out at adoptioninstitute.org, and his personal uh, uh, website is FMH Consultants, and that stands for Family Mental Health Consultants. So you type in fmhconsultants.com. Uh, either of those will get you uh, uh, to Dr. Brodinski. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I look forward to talking with you next week. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.